Greetings, everyone. This is the Sound Health Options Show with Richard Guy, and Sherry Edwards is off really working on the portal, which is, I know I say this every week, but it's really true. Every week I watch her do a demo, and it's really quite amazing. Having just talked very briefly with our guest backstage, Stephanie Seneff, wow, it's going to be a great show. I'm going to talk to Sherry and see if there's a, a specific program that would show up. I imagine it appears in a number of the things, BioDiet and a number of the other programs, but if she can pull something together that would really give us a good read of glyphosate showing up in the vocal print. takes me to back into, you can find out more about Portal at soundhealthportal.com, and there you'll, up at the top, I believe you click on services or scroll over services, and you'll see the free campaigns, and a free campaign that are running now. I know that they're doing post-traumatic stress disorder, I believe also bio diet, and I can't remember the others, but just scroll over services and you'll see the free campaigns. And that means that you can go in and record, you sign up for a free account, you record two 45-second files, audio files, just mean a voice recording, and it's set up on the com- so you can do this down on your computer, and you submit those with the campaign that you want to run, and within a few hours, or the day is the most I've ever waited. You get a report in the mail with more information than you can really imagine, which is fabulous. Really, the amount of information now that's available, and you can even go and use uh, the NanoVoice, my old favorite, which is free software, which you can also download on a Windows machine. And you can use the NanoVoice. I use it quite often to test supplements. So if I'm adding something new to my regime, I'll take a vocal print before I take the the um, supplement as a sort of control. Excuse me. My devices are randomly talking. So you take a vocal print and you see your base level and then you add the supplement. You wait about a half an hour and then you take another vocal print and you see what's shifted, possibly too much, too little, not enough. It just gives you a a nice reference point and you can do that for free at soundhealthportal.com. I'll quickly jump to the this is an, another, I know I say every week, but this is another really amazing conversation we're going to have with Dr. Stephanie Seneff. This is a show that you're going to want to pass on to your friends and tell people about, and they're going to probably want to listen to a couple of times because there's a lot of information in here talking about glyphosate and long-term effects and all sorts of, oof, wow, exciting information. You can find the show by going about 15 minutes after the show. You can go back to soundhealthoptions.com, click on the radio tab, and click on Sound Health Radio. And the link to the replay will be there with the show notes. And or you can also go to any of the podcast aggregators, which means iTunes, Pocket Cast, Dog Catcher, Google Podcast, which I find to be quite good now. And you'll be able to search for Sherry Edwards and find a about 700 hours of shows, and this will be the most recent there. Actually, with Google Podcasts and Pocket Casts, you can easily share it to other people. You can listen to the show, and there's there's an easy link that you can send to your friends so that they can listen to it as well. It's going to be a good one. With that, Dr. Stephanie Seneff is a senior research scientist at MIT's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
She has a BS degree from MIT in biology and a PhD from MIT in electrical engineering and computer science. Her recent interests have focused on the role of toxic chemicals and micronutrient deficiencies in health and disease, with specific emphasis on the pervasive herbicide Roundup and the mineral sulfur. She's authored over 30 peer-reviewed journal papers over the past few years on these topics. In 2012, Dr. Seneff was elected Fellow of the International Speech and Communication Association. Recently, she's been concentrating mainly on the relationship between nutrition and health. Since 2011, she's published over two dozen papers in various medical and health-related journals on topics such as modern-day diseases, that is, Alzheimer's, autism, cardiovascular diseases. Analysis and search of databases of drug side effects using natural language processing techniques and the effects of nutritional deficiencies and environmental toxins on human health. Dr. Stephanie joins us to update us on her current research. Good morning, Dr. Stephanie. Good morning. How are you? I, as we were, I was laughing backstage that I'm you know, happy to be talking to you so much, <laughs> but it's such a gnarly subject. It really just yes. is... Uh, so mind-blowing. The more I, every time I do a show with you and I read, I think, oh, my God, <laughs> really? <Yes>. Wow. Something <laughs> That's what new, I something think. Else. Every time I read another paper, it's like, oh, my God, again, you know. It's, really? It's quite eye-opening. Again? Oh, man. It's, I, I am just always learning more about this chemical, and it is really a mind-bender. It is. Um, I want to ask sort of a side – I want to back into this conversation, and I want to ask you if this is more of an opinion – what do the French know about glyphosate that the United States doesn't seem to be able to figure out? Do you have a thought about that? Well, just that the Europeans are actually much, in general, they're much better about controlling toxic chemicals in general, and they're certainly much wiser. They're not, uh, you know, they are also being poisoned by glyphosate, but not nearly as much as we are, is basically what it comes down to. They've got better regulations, and they're doing better research. I mean, I think they're just more on top of, the knowledge about the effects, the long-term effects of toxic chemicals and a greater desire to reduce exposure compared to us. We seem to think that there's no amount of toxic chemicals that's too much. It's just amazing to me that our regulators are are very weak. I mean, they're just easily bought and uh, we're just not bothering. We don't even test for glyphosate. I mean, it's quite shocking to me that it's the most common uh, herbicide used on the planet. The United States uses more per capita than any other country. It's all over the food supply, and the government doesn't even bother to test the food to see if it's in there. It's pretty, to me, shocking. Wow. Okay. Um, now I need to move along, not fall into that too long. <laughs> That's really <laughs> – oh, wow. Each thing is like that. I have to take a deep breath. Um, I had a, a really surprising aha as I was studying up to do the show with you that glyphosate – I don't know why I hadn't thought about this before, but glyphosate is water soluble. Yes, what, right. What does that mean about the effect on, oh, let's say rainfall, and right. our cells? What does Absolutely. that mean? It's crucial, actually. It's a crucial uh, piece of the puzzle with glyphosate, and uh, and in fact, they add chemicals to the uh, formulations to make it even more water soluble, which makes it more readily taken up by the cells. Because once it's Water soluble it gets into the cytoplasm of the cells. The cells take it up actually actively along amino acid transport channels. One of the really awful things about glyphosate is that it's a, an amino acid. 
And the body understands amino acids and knows how to actively import them. And it doesn't know that this is a toxic amino acid. So the cells go ahead and take it up actively uh, from the medium. And it has, it's, you know, it's available because it's soluble. Yikes. And what is that? And does this confuse the body when it gets this new amino Absolutely. acid? Or does it, does it bump an amino acid out to get this amino yes. acid in? That's exactly what it does. This is the thing that I'm realizing. I'm almost certain that I'm right. Very controversial topic, and it's the core of my research right now is this concept that the, the cells are taking up glyphosate and confusing it with glycine. And glycine is one of the coding amino acids. Those are the basic building blocks of the proteins. You know, the proteins are assembled like beads on a string, according to the DNA code. It's the most famous thing about life, really, is the DNA code and the assembly of the proteins. And the proteins are the workhorses of the body. And uh, proteins contain a lot of glycine, some more than others. And uh, the glyphosate is getting swapped in for the glycine by mistake because the glyphosate is a complete glycine molecule that perfectly matches uh, the, the pocket where glycine is supposed to go in the, in the, in the enzyme that assembles the proteins. And it has, an extra, it has extra material stuck onto its nitrogen atom. But that's not a problem because the nitrogen atom needs to be outside of the pocket because it has to hook up with a neighbor in the in the protein chain. So it doesn't it it still fits even though it has this extra stuff on the nitrogen. That's the problem. And and the body gets confused and puts the glyphosate in. And once you do that, it's a very different behavior. Glycine is chosen in certain spots because it's the smallest amino acid. Doesn't have any side chains. And uh, it needs to be glycine. And in many proteins at many spots, it absolutely has to be glycine in order for the protein to work. Glyphosate has this bulky, negatively charged thing stuck onto the nitrogen atom, which totally messes up its behavior. And it no longer operates the way it's supposed to. And certain proteins are more susceptible than others. And certain spots in certain proteins are more susceptible than others. It's a massive puzzle. And it's absolutely fascinating. And it's terrifying when you think of the implications of it. And what about rainfall? This is a yeah, horrific thing that I, I just hadn't – this is why I was so shocked that I just hadn't cognitively painted the picture of, oh, my God, this is water-soluble. So Yeah, and rainfall. it's washing out into the oceans too. I mean they've had, they had a major uh, marine die-off in Nova Scotia a couple of years back in the winter, and that it was follow, following uh, three months earlier they had three different um, – provinces that abut the uh, Bay of Fundy had legislated uh, allowing uh, glyphosate to be used to kill the hardwood trees in the forest so they could plant uh, conifers which would grow faster and get for the forest industry. So they were spraying glyphosate all over the forest next to the Bay of Fundy. And the, and the Bay, you know, it has that huge tidal wave. You know how the tide there is really strong and it goes in, the tidal board goes up into the rivers and it's just pulling that glyphosate right out into the ocean and they, I think the massive die-off was directly caused by this glyphosate, and they, they didn't even think of that because glyphosate's harmless. You know, nobody thinks of glyphosate. Okay. I'm already taking a deep breath, and we're not even five minutes in. Shocking. <laughs> um, now, we haven't talked about this previously, but I, I, this leads to a study that I bumped into about advanced liver disease and glyphosate. Yes. So everything that you just said now makes sense to me about the liver disease and glyphosate. So right. we're damaging the liver by this because it's so easily assimilatable in the whole system. It's not right. even like it's a yes. fat. So talk right. just a bit about liver disease. 
Oh yes, that's there's a clear link, and many studies have shown that. I have copies of multiple papers that talk that show uh, exposure to rats, you know, for example, and then severe problems with their liver as a consequence of even low dose glyphosate. I mean, the the study that I was most impressed with was the first study I read on glyphosate actually was by Seralini in France, and you mentioned France earlier. He's he's got a group that's done a long uh, for many years has been studying glyphosate and glyphosate based products. And um, they showed that they exposed rats to low levels of glyphosate that were environmentally plausible over the entire lifespan of the rats. And they showed, particularly the male rats, severe issues with liver disease and kidney disease. And, of course, we have an epidemic in kidney failure as well that I think is directly linked to glyphosate. So both the liver and the kidney, both of which are responsible, of course, for um, you know getting rid of toxins. And um, glyphosate disrupts their ability to detoxify other things. That's part of the reason why it's so bad because the, the in particular there's, for example, cytochrome P450 enzymes in the liver, which are very important for detoxifying a lot of the fat-soluble toxins like the PCBs and the, polyphen- the phenolic uh, compounds that are toxic. So these things are um, not getting broken down, not, not being able to be removed by the liver because of glyphosate suppressing the enzymes that should do that, those cytochrome P450 enzymes. And that's been shown in lab studies that it, uh, it has a severe effect on those enzymes. And by the way, that works well with respect to the glycine uh, analog model because those enzymes have a, a motif that has two and, and sometimes three glycine residues highly conserved. And that motif is going to be vulnerable to glyphosate substitution. That's going to mess up the enzyme. Okay. Wow. Is there? No, I'll save that for later. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this so leads to, and I feel so sorry for rats. Uh, this leads to I know. a big hairy conversation about glyphosate causing serious multi generational health damage to rats. Right. This is a right. study from Washington State University. Yes. So I say that very slowly because I want people to really hear that about it causing multi-generational health damage. So please talk about that. Yes, that's an amazing story. I have the author here, the first author written down, Deepika Kubsbad, K-U-B-S-B-A-D is the first author if you want to try to look that up. Um, it's an amazing article. And um, it's, it's uh, by the way, not the first one that I've seen on that topic. I think people are aware, the researchers are now aware that there is a vulnerable period during pregnancy, and it's actually early in the pregnancy. It's, it's very interesting to me that the fetus actually, the female fetus produces all of her eggs before she even produces her brain. I mean, it's like one of the first things that happens in, during fetal development. It's really fascinating. So you've got the germ cells for the subsequent generation already there, uh, early in pregnancy, and it's during that critical period that those germ cells are being formed. They've become aware that if you expose the mother to toxic chemicals during that period, it is like, wow, watch out, because it's going to show up in the next generation. And they're aware of that. They've seen that for other toxic chemicals, like the ones that are in plastics. And so, um, so these people got the idea of exposing these rats, pregnant rats, exactly during that period in pregnancy, when the eggs would be when the fetus would be developing her eggs. And um, that's the only period in which the rat was exposed. And the level that it was exposed at was half the level that's supposed to be okay, you know, allowable, non-toxic. So very low level over a short period of time, but a precise short period of time. Expose that rat 
uh, pregnant rat to the to glyphosate. And then from then on, nobody's getting exposed. But then you see the rat was fine. There wasn't any evidence of harm. And the offspring seemed okay too. But then when they got around to having babies of their own, that's when you started to see the trouble. And all of them, both male and female, had major problems with their reproductive systems. The mammary glands, the um, the prostate gland, the um, the testes, and the ovaries all were damaged. They had clear evidence of damage. And the placenta, you know, so during pregnancy, so during their pregnancies, they had a lot of trouble. And there, uh, especially at birth, there were many uh, births that just failed. They couldn't. Uh, whole process of birthing was messed up. It was very difficult birth that they experienced, and many of the offspring died at birth. I mean, it was amazing how badly they were affected in the second generation. And even the next generation after that, they still they started to see kidney failure problems in, this, in the subsequent generation. So it's really pretty scary to think about. Right now, we've already got children whose parents were exposed when they were pregnant. You know, we're starting to see that. And that's, of course, getting worse and worse because glyphosate's going up exponentially. So today's pregnant women are being exposed to much more glyphosate than they were 20 years ago in this country. And so the, their children are going to be affected when they try to have kids. It's something that even if they were, didn't have any further exposure, they would still have that effect from what happened to their mom while she was pregnant with them. This is really quite terrifying when you think about the consequences of it. And I wasn't going to talk about this now, but this this, this does lead me to query is the multi-generation – have we had glyphosate long enough that we're, we're seeing multi-generational yes. effects already in, in humans? We have. I mean, so basically glyphosate was introduced in 1974, and levels were pretty low, I think, for the first – up until 2000. You know, they were sufficiently low that you probably would, you wouldn't really necessarily see a signal, although we were seeing the autism rate, rates creeping up, and I think that was due to glyphosate. Starting around late 1990s, they introduced all these GMO Roundup-ready crops, the corn, the soy, the canola, the sugar beets. And that's when glyphosate usage really started escalating. And they claimed that it was going to be great because you would be able to swap out some of the considered to be more toxic herbicides uh, and substitute glyphosate for those because you had put in this resistance gene, which comes from a bacterium, into the crop so that the crop could survive the glyphosate assault. And this meant you could just spray the glyphosate all over the crop without worrying about it. But it also meant the glyphosate got into the food supply. So really, starting in the early 2000s is when it started ramping up. And it really accelerated over that period from 2000 until today. It's been going up exponentially. They keep on using more and more because the weeds keep on getting more and more resistant. And now they've got these weeds that are so stubborn, they have to start putting other chemicals back in like dicamba. They've got a real mess in the Midwest right now because they've got a product that has both glyphosate and dicamba. Dicamba is considered to be a much more toxic herbicide than glyphosate. But now they've put it back because they've got these weeds that don't get killed by glyphosate. They've managed to mutate into something that's resistant. So, uh, and dicamba is causing a lot of trouble with drift and killing the neighbor's crop, which doesn't have the resistance gene. There's a lot of lawsuits going on with that. But, of course, the dicamba is also probably harming us as well. So now we're mixing the glyphosate and the dicamba. Who knows what that's going to do in terms of our future health. So now we're making toxic cocktails, Mr. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or not in a certain way, just in a way. Worse. Wow. Wow. Um, and that, uh, so, so, so if you're somebody 20 years old having a child today, 
um, yeah. would be 2000, right? Well, 1999. Right. So it was really just starting to become. We're, it's going to get. I think we're going to start to see um, uh, issues with people. In, well, we already do see issues with infertility, and of course, we're being exposed all the while. It's not like you only got it during that time when your mom was pregnant. We're continuing to be exposed beyond that. So these kids that are 20 today, they've been getting exposure all their life. And when they try to have a child, they're going to run into trouble, I think, which reflects the high problems we have with infertility and all the infertility clinics and whatnot. And do you think this also is contributing to the increase in autism and ADHD and all these other sort of, I I don't like the term side effects, other effects that are occurring from this contributing to the combination of toxic load and the specific actions of the glyphosate, or now we're beginning to see the increase of these, it's exacerbating everything else? Absolutely. I mean, autism is a perfect match. I've I've done plots of autism in first grade, according to the USDA, and uh, U.S., not the education, what is it? (laughs) I forgot which one, but a U.S. department that gathers this information for first grade autism rates. And if you plot that against and integrating over the previous four years the amount of glyphosate used on corn and soy crops, and you plot those two things together, the two curves coincide. It's a 0.997 correlation coefficient, which is essentially perfect match. And I think the glyphosate is the most important reason why we have an autism epidemic. Other things are contributing, but I think glyphosate stands out as the most important chemical causing the epidemic. Not the only thing that causes autism, but it's causing the epidemic. And also the ADHD epidemic, I think the depression, the Alzheimer's, the kidney failure, the, the, the obesity, the diabetes, all these things are matching, by the way. They're all going up dramatically, which is why we have such an incredibly profitable medical system because everybody's so sick. You know, We're taking all these drugs. U.S. takes 55% of the world's drug supply, pharmaceutical drugs. We're just a sick country because we're being so badly poisoned by the glyphosate compared to other people in other countries. Our burden is much worse in this country compared to other countries. And that leads me to, I have to jump slightly to then talk about glyphosate. So we're, so the glyphosate is damaging the microbiome of the planet, of the soil. Mm-hmm. It's in our water supply. It's in our rain. It's in pretty much anything, you know, blowback. I mean, it's everywhere. So it's doing that to the soil. So therefore, is part of what it's doing to our bodies the fact that it's damaging the gut? Absolutely. So that our own microbiome is a mess? Absolutely. So that's the first line of attack. Yeah, and it, it, it preferentially kills bifidobacteria. That's been shown in studies. And bifidobacteria are absolutely crucial in the beginning of life. I mean, they're supposed to really flourish in the gut at the very beginning when the baby starts nursing. Those are the ones. They have to really dominate. They normally would dominate, but the glyphosate is killing them off, and that's allowing other species like Clostridia to gain a foothold, and so that you get an overgrowth of these pathogens, which is then inducing an inflammatory gut situation because the immune cells come in to try to fight the pathogens, and then you get damage to the gut barrier, you get leaky gut, and you also get disruption of... um, the, the enzymes that are involved in digestion, and, and this is something I believe is happening. Anthony Samso found, he ordered uh, he, he ordered uh, uh, trypsin, pepsin, and lipase, which are digestive enzymes from a lab, mm-hmm. and he sent them off, and he found that all three of them were con- highly contaminated with glyphosate. That's in, included in mm. the paper that we published together. 
And it's not surprising because they're derived from pigs and cows and they're fed heavy doses of glyphosate in their GMO Roundup Ready feed. But those chips and pepsin lipase all have essential glycine residues in them. And so if you're getting glyphosate substituting for those glycines, those, those enzymes are not going to work correctly. And then you're not going to be able to break down proteins. And if you can't break down proteins, then you're going to get irritation in your gut and you're going to get leaky gut. This all is known that this happens when the proteins aren't broken down. And um, then those unbroken down proteins are going to wander into your circulation, your lymph system and your blood, blood system, and they're going to cause autoimmune disease because your immune cells are going to react to those undigested proteins as being foreign proteins and you're going to develop antibodies, and then those antibodies are going to become autoantibodies attacking your tissues. And right now we have an epidemic in all kinds of autoimmune diseases, things like lupus and multiple sclerosis and chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, and I mean all kinds of things. And can we, can we at least kind of counterbalance by, for instance, I use plant-derived enzymes rather than land-based. Not because yeah, I'm opposed, I just because I'm a fan. I take plant, you know. Yeah, right. Plant derived I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, like, hopefully it's organic. If you take an organic plant-based, that would be great. I think that would be recommended. Uh, enzyme, yeah. Right, sure. that's my preference. And then can we, do you think we can, I, I know this isn't replacing it, but as long as we seem to be in battle with this product and what's happening on the planet, can we counterbalance a bit by adding extra probiotics or particular strains or can we yeah, I mean, throw that more fuel into the positive side of the fire? Yeah, I, yeah, that's become a popular thing to uh, take probiotic supplements. I, uh, I've always been more in favor of natural solutions and so I encourage people to eat fermented foods, naturally fermented foods. I think those are very healthy and uh, particularly, by the way, apple cider vinegar, sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha, all those things, you know, the sort of pickled vegetables. Um, the, there's a, a microbe called acetobacter that is very common in those fermented foods that is among the very few microbes that can fully metabolize glyphosate. They can break it down and use its phosphorus atom as a source of phosphorus. Very few microbes can do that because glyphosate has a very unusual, what's called a CT bond that's very difficult for most organisms to break down. But acetobacter know how to do that. And so I strongly encourage people to to take to eat those foods every every day. And you know, we just make our own salad dressing. We make an organic salad dressing from all the basics and we include um Bragg's organic apple cider vinegar in our salad dressing. I've been a big fan of Bragg's forever. <laughs> it seems like mm-hmm. I've always had it. And I just use it because I like the flavor. Originally before right. I knew what I know now, I did it because I like the flavor. And because I do it too. Helps so that's really with, you know, fortunate. Acid yes. reflux and all that kind of thing. But so I've been right. on on the Dr. Bronner's for I mean Dr. Bragg's forever. Um, but it's an easy thing to add. I mean, you can just take a teaspoon, a couple, you know, a, a teaspoon to start, and then maybe a couple tablespoons a day. And it sure seems like I mean, if you only do that, right? I least, would strongly encourage because there's no harm in that. I mean, it's it's all good. You know, it's really an easy thing. It's not expensive. It's really, I would strongly encourage that. Another thing I've been told is um, people are taking, you know, um, bentonite clay and uh, humic acid, fulvic acid, not folic acid, but fulvic, F-U-L-V-I-C. These are sort of organic matter from the soil. Those are supposed to be able to bind to glyphosate and take it out through the feces. 
I mean, I haven't confirmed that that's happening, but people have used those on cows. Cows, of course, are getting sick because they're getting a lot of glyphosate in their diet. And there have been some nice studies on the cows that have shown where they measured glyphosate in the urine and then they fed them, actually they fed them sauerkraut juice, which I think was really smart, and um, bentonite clay, fulvic acid, humic acid, and they were able to show improvements in their health and reduction in the amount of glyphosate in their urine. So some nice studies done on cows. I think we should use them as a model to try to think about doing the same thing with humans. And those are all very safe as far as I can tell. Yeah, I mean, what's the? <laughs> I can't imagine any harm. I'm also a fan of drinking good uh, pickle juice. Um, mm-hmm, yes. But I like, but I like acidic flavors and that kind of thing to begin with. I mean, there are times when I'll saute vegetables with a handful of protein, right. and then put a splash of some sort of pickle juice, a little bit of apple cider vinegar, maybe some clean, you know, soy, right. and it's great flavors. And it's absolutely, yeah. We we just take a cabbage and just stir fry it with uh, vinegar. You know, make a vinegar. Um, Sort of sweet and sour with some spice, you know, spicy. Um, it's delicious. And so with the um, – I'm going to stick with the brags for just a moment. The other – any of the fermented foods, I know they're all in vogue now, but I think of my grandmother who lived to be 106 and died 30 years ago, so that was a long time ago, always had fermented stuff around. I mean we we, we had yeah. a culture – of people who always had fermented things around and didn't think anything of them. It was really a way to preserve food for a longer Absolutely. shelf. Life. It wasn't like, oh, right. the magic of fermentation that it's all about. We need it on the shelf for a long time. This is how you right. eat it. It's a good so point. It's funny how now it's like, oh, fermentation is the thing. Really? It's a thing? <laughs> I know. Which is great. It's, I mean, it's I, kind I'm of happy it's a thing. It's too bad that we kind of came up with things like freezers, which would allow us to keep things without having to worry about them spoiling as much, and therefore we don't need the fermentation as much. And so we're not, you know, we're not becoming, we're becoming less and less. Um, it's just becoming less and less a part of our diet. I mean, it's returning now, I think, because of all these um, issues with the gut and the uh, and the understanding that the gut microbiome needs to be replenished, you know, by these uh, natural probiotic products. And We'll jump ever so slightly because I know you're, uh, another passion of yours is sulfur. Do you try and eat some sort of uh, cruciferous product every day, cruciferous being the broccoli, uh, yeah, broccoli, pretty, Brussels, pretty that kind of family? Okay. Very, uh, very common part of our diet, broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower, Brussels sprouts. We eat those routinely and cycle through those. And, of course, onions are also a good source. And garlic especially is something I absolutely love. And we always chop up a lot of garlic and put it into our salad. Um, I, you can't get enough garlic, in my opinion. It is a superfood, and it's a really good source of a good form of sulfur. And why do we want more sulfur? Yeah, well, that's, that's a long story, but I believe that sulfur deficiency, and in particular sulfate deficiency, is a systemic problem in the United States, and I believe glyphosate is causing it. Sulfate is uh, is a molecule that contains sulfur at its center, and then it has four oxygens um, branching out from the sulfur, and it has a negative two charge, so it's called an anion. And sulfate has many, many roles in the body. It's quite amazing how many different sulfated things there are that are important for your health. And um, I could it's a long, long story to explain why sulfate is so important, but the fact is that I believe glyphosate is disrupting sulfate in a major way. And that's partly because of all these enzymes that depend upon glycine that are getting disrupted. I've been 
following all the different enzymes that are involved in sulfur metabolism, and just about every one of them has uh, strong glycine dependency. So, and uh, a lot of people are finding that they're sensitive to sulfur, like they can't eat sulfur-containing foods, and I think that's because the uh, enzyme called sulfite oxidase has been disrupted by glyphosate in the gut. Sulfite oxidase oxidizes sulfite to sulfate, and autistic kids have been shown to have something like 50 times as much sulfite in their urine as their normal controls, 50-fold increase in sulfite, mm. which indicates that they're, they have a problem with sulfite oxidase. And um, I think that problem is due to glyphosate poisoning in the gut. And what happens, sulfite is extremely toxic. So the body has to get rid of it quickly, and the gut microbes know how to either oxidize it to sulfate or reduce it and incorporate it into organic sulfur compounds. Both of those pathways, and I've, I've, they've, it's been shown in E. coli, studies on E. coli, that glyphosate disrupts the ability of E. coli to incorporate inorganic sulfur, such as sulfite, into organic matters, such as the sulfur-containing amino acids like cysteine and methionine. So when that gets broken, what happens is you get an overgrowth of desulfovibrio, which is a, uh, a uh, bacterium that reduces sulfite to hydrogen sulfide gas. And so you get an overabundance of hydrogen sulfide gas in the gut, which causes a lot of discomfort and which is also toxic if it gets to too high a level. So the gut is getting all messed up with respect to the way the sulfur is being managed. And as a consequence, the child avoids sulfur-containing foods, which of course then eventually leads to severe systemic sulfate deficiency throughout the body. And what's been shown with autistic kids is that they have very low sulfate levels in the ventricles, like in the brain, the brain ventricles. It's a crucial area of the brain where the um, sulfate levels are reduced. The levels of a molecule called heparin sulfate is reduced in the brain ventricles in association with autism, both in human autistic kids and in the mouse models of autism. And I think that's a crucial feature of the autism, having insufficient sulfate in the brain. So all of that wow. ties together to the glyphosate disruption of the sulfur system. So could we have, could there be immediate benefit or long-term benefit from children who either have autistic tendencies or aren't autistic to get them to do Epsom soap salt? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because then yes, you don't I have to be getting it into that. their mouth and going through the Absolutely. whole battle of getting somebody right, to eat exactly. something they if hate. If the gut is messed up, then you bypass the gut by getting the sulfate through the skin. And I, I always recommend to people who have children with autism that they should be soaking their children in Epsom salt baths every day. Yeah, I think it, it's a great way for them to get uh, to re, re, renew their sulfate supply. And it's and it's an anti-inflammatory and it's a good thing. I mean, being in a bath is calming to begin with. Right. There's I that. Know. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I think that's a great way. And if you can, you know, of course, if you put the child on an organic diet, then eventually the gut gets straightened up. And, um, then they can eat the sulfur-containing foods again. I mean, I think that it's really kind of a catch-22 because if you can't eat the sulfur-containing foods, then you're going to increasingly, you're going to get more and more deficient in sulfur over time. It's going to be a downward spiral. Right. And the other thing about the, the soaking in the bath is, is also because the magnesium is similar to right. derma, it's going to be relaxing to the system, actually soothing to the nerves in a certain way. Right. Right. It just I seems like a win-win. Everybody go out and get a bathtub or at least soak your feet. Epsom salt right. every day. And if you have access to natural sulfurous hot springs, that's even better. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
<laughs> I love organic hot water. I used to travel mm. around doing shows, doing whole life expos and things, and we would always plan our routes so we'd have mm. to pass through some place that was a natural hot springs in the western United States. Yeah, and Epsom, the actual Epsom place is a, it has hot springs. That's where the Epsom salt word comes from. It's a place in, in uh, I think in the UK called Epsom. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's great. That's excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Um, okay, we're going to jump now. Everybody hold on. Uh, we're going to jump to something, you know, this has all been a good setup, and it's amazing. Now we, I want to ask you about Candida aureus. This right. is new. I, this has been just like, wow, come on back soon. And it's an amazing thing. Talk about that and superbugs. Yeah. yeah, it's really scary. I mean, of course, we've been seeing that there's a crisis budding in antibiotics in general. Certainly, we've been seeing multiple resistant, like MRSA, multiple resistant Staph aureus, you know, various, and, and Pseudomonas rugosa. We've had various um, bacteria that are resistant to everything you can throw at them, and people are dying from an infection they pick up in the hospital when they go in for a routine operation. But this Candida auris is really something else, and it's, it's just only recently have people become aware of it. I know they have it in New York. Um, I think New York is one, is one of the biggest uh, infections in the country right now, but it's showing up all over the world. Actually, other parts of the world have it too. And it is a it's a uh, Candida is a yeast, right? And Candida auris is a new species, as far as I can tell. And it is extremely um, hardy. So it, they have, like there was a person in New York who got an infection with this thing, and then I think they eventually died. And then they tried to fumigate their room, and they did everything they could. And the stupid, the, the the bug would just not go away. There was no way to kill it. And so um, people are really quite worried about this um, this yeast that is uh, extremely um, toxic, um, high mortality rate if you get it, and no way to treat it. You just have to hope that your immune system is strong enough to fight it off. What I'm finding uh, more generally with respect to glyphosate, again, with respect to these protein problems, is that there are a lot of proteins in the innate immune system. This is not so the adaptive immune system is where you get the um, antibodies, and that's the whole thing that vaccines are based on. You take a vac- you get a vaccine, and your adaptive immune system develops antibodies to that specific antigen that's in the vaccine, which is what gives you specific protection against that disease. But there is an innate immune system that should be quite strong, and and that can often clear a disease without ever having to develop any antibodies. And that innate immune system depends on a set of proteins that have that I consider to be extremely vulnerable to glyphosate attack. And so what this means is that the innate immune system gets uh, weakened by glyphosate exposure, and that makes uh, individuals more susceptible to infections with anything, including things like yeast. And we have a lot of problems with yeast infection independent of the specific species of Candida auris. Candida infection is, is a looming epidemic itself, even without this extremely not obnoxious species of it. And I think it's all tied to glyphosate's disruption of our natural immunity so that we become weak. And then the yeast, uh, they, they get into the general, of course, you get the leaky gut, they get into the general circulation, they get into places where they're not supposed to be, and they cause symptoms, you know. And then you can't fight them off because your innate immune system is too weak. So I think that's what's allowing these bugs to flourish is because our immune systems are not, have been uh, disrupted by glyphosate. And once again, we benefit by doing fermented foods to at least help because we can't obviously as of yet, unless we all move to France, 
um, <laughs> we can't stop getting exposed to glyphosate. So at least it, it, for, for our, I'll call it our first aid kit, we want to have fermented foods in there. We want to have Epsom right. soaks. Uh, we want to be doing possibly some things that will help draw, like the folic acid. I want to do more research about that because I'm a fan of folic acid anyway and micronutrients. So we want to have folic acid in there to at least see if we can help cope with this. Um, I was particularly interested in the candida thing because I remember years ago, uh, many years ago, I did research with Orion Truss, who was one of the first doctors to ever write about yeast. He wrote the book called The Yeast Connection. So candida in general. Uh, right. So the fact that we now have like a super candida is really, yes. <laughs> come on. <laughs> and I would love to know if this candida is actually able to, I've been trying to find this out, whether it's able to metabolize glyphosate. Because I, I do believe that one of the issues is that a bug that learns how to metabolize glyphosate has a huge advantage over other bugs. That's why Pseudomonas, Pseudomonas, there was an experiment where they basically mm-hmm. fed these bugs. Um, they had a whole mix of things, and they fed them glyphosate, and they deprived them of phosphorus-containing nutrients. So they were forced to either get phosphorus out of glyphosate or die. And that was a good way to find out which bugs could actually metabolize glyphosate. And they found – that's how they found um, this acetobacter that I mentioned earlier. But they also found pseudomonas. So it was basically acetobacter and pseudomonas that survived and were able to metabolize glyphosate. Um, and use its phosphorus as a source of phosphorus. So Pseudomonas ruginosa is an epidemic in the hospital that's causing a lot of trouble. And I suspect that one of the reasons is because it can metabolize glyphosate. So it's actually doing a favor for the host by removing the glyphosate. But then, of course, it's causing all kinds of obnoxious symptoms. And I really wonder whether this Candida auris also has that ability to metabolize glyphosate. I would love to know the answer to that, but I haven't been able to find it yet. I don't think anyone knows yet, but I haven't been able to find it in the literature hmm. because I think that's how it could become so virulent, you know, and so successful against all the other microbes because it has that huge advantage if it can just clear the glyphosate. Wow. And then do you think that, so let's let's say that that, that Candida did kill glyphosate or consume glyphosate, do you think we could possibly then in turn take that and turn that into a positive? <laughs> well, you would hope so, except that unfortunately it kills you. I mean, it's so virulent that it can kill you. So I, <laughs> it sounds good on paper. It's, oh, yeah, let's just take this bug and let it clear it. And of course, I don't know if it can. I, I haven't shown that. I, I, don't have a, I don't have any kind of proof of that. That's just a total wild idea. Okay. Okay. But yes, in a sense with pseudomonas, you know, you wonder whether – I wonder, actually, one thing I've wondered is whether the really bizarre uh, adverse effects of Cipro, I don't know if you've heard about this with the fluoroquinolones, mm-hmm. and Cipro is a major representative of that class. They're a class of antibiotics that more and more we're becoming aware that they have this incredibly bizarre set of side effects that can happen a long time after you've stopped taking them. That includes things like Achilles tendonitis and brain issues. I mean, all kinds of bizarre things. Um, that look to me like glyphosate poisoning. And so what I'm suspecting, mm. again, this is just a theory, is that the uh, Cipro is killing off some microbe that you happen to have taken on board that had had been clearing glyphosate for you. And it might have been one that was relatively harmless, you know, that had been clearing your glyphosate as it came into the gut. But because you took this Cipro antibiotic, it clobbered that microbe and now that microbe is no longer there. And so now you continue to get your glyphosate exposure from wherever. 
and now you get symptoms from it because that microbe's not clearing it. I, that's a theory that I have, which I think is an interesting possibility for how to explain these bizarre side effects that you're getting from Cipro because they can't explain these side effects according to what the drug does. Hmm. I look forward to speaking to you again in not too long period of time about that. That's an amazing idea. Wow. I didn't know that about Cipro. Oof. Yeah, uh, that's very scary right. there now. They're really coming on pretty strong about take something else if you can. <laughs> if you've got an infection, don't take Cipro. Wow. You know it's you know it's bad when they start saying that. Like, no, I know. That? Right. Wow. Um, now this is a this is just such an amazing crossroads of things to me that I, I I'll just ask it this way: What is the this? I can't help but use the word creepy. This creepy crossroads of MMR vaccine, mm-hmm. glyphosate, and measles outbreaks. Oh man, yeah, that's really something, isn't it? I'm just wow. It's really <laughs> it's so sad right now with the measles outbreaks. They're becoming so fanatic about making sure that everybody's getting their measles vaccine, you know, and becoming very um, militaristic about it in New York City, where they've actually pretty much said they're going to round you up if you don't get your measles MMR vaccine, you know, because of the outbreaks in your in certain parts of New York City. It's pretty crazy. Um, and I think they're not recognizing the whole story with the measles. I mean, it's really very complicated with the interplay between the vaccines and the disease. And measles is a really good example because when I was a kid, you got measles. There was no way to escape it. And I remember it came flying through my neighborhood and, my, you know, everybody in my school was getting it. And, of course, I got it. And it was very mild. I was I was able to stay home from school for two weeks because that was the rule, and that was wonderful. I got a two-week vacation from school, and my siblings all got it at the same time, so we had a wonderful time. We remember it very fondly as a two-week vacation from school, and we played a lot of board games in the house, you know. And uh, none of us was particularly sick. We had a few spots on our stomach. It was nothing. And then we had permanent immunity from then on, you know. So it's like, yay, you've succeeded getting past this milestone. It's kind of a, chi- a childhood milestone you had to get through. Now we've sort of portrayed measles as being some horrible thing that you just can't, you know, it's just absolutely, God forbid that you should get the measles. And um, you have to stop it at all costs. And we've done this massive va- vaccine campaign, but what's happening is that although the infection will give you permanent um immunity, the vaccine wears off. And so you've got all these people who got their vaccine some time ago. What's particularly worrisome is young women who got their vaccine when they were a child. Now they don't have antibodies anymore. They get pregnant. They have a child. Their child doesn't have any antibody protection from the mom because the mom doesn't have any antibodies to give to the child. Now you've got a vulnerable infant. And the whole idea in the natural system is that the infant is protected by the mom's antibodies. It's a good system. So until the infant's immune system becomes strong enough to be able to defend itself against measles, it has the mom's protection. But that's not working anymore. So now we have this very vulnerable population. Of course, the infants, when they get the measles, it's a much more serious problem than it is if you're older. You know, five-year-old child, it's a breeze. But when you're uh, under a year old, measles becomes a more serious problem. So we've basically traded off a, a rather innocent problem for a much bigger problem, which is measles infection in infants by virtue of all these vaccines that we gave to today's young women, such that they no longer have that protection to offer to their children. So that's all mixed up. Measles also has been shown to be beneficial. Interesting studies where they looked at people who got, and these are people as adults, um, 
and even you know long after they got the measles when they were child decades ago, and they're finding that those who got the measles as a child have uh, a decreased risk to things like heart disease and cancer compared to um, the ones who didn't get the measles. So we don't understand what measles is doing for us, but it's definitely doing something beneficial. To catch the disease is a good thing with respect to strengthening your immune system such that you can protect yourself later on from uh, some of these nasty chronic diseases. So I, I think we're, you know, we're playing God with these vaccines in ways that we don't understand. And, of course, also the thing that really scares me is that MMR has been found to be contaminated with glyphosate. And um, Anthony Samsel and, uh, and Zen Honeycutt both independently tested multiple vaccines for glyphosate, and they found glyphosate only in some of them, but they found by far the highest levels. Both of them consistently found the highest levels in MMR compared to the other vaccines. And so MMR with glyphosate in it is really, really scary because now you're injecting the glyphosate past all the barriers, and God knows what that's going to do as far as the glyphosate interacting with the rest of the mix in the vaccine. Uh, you know, tremendous things could be happening there. And I actually believe that there's a possibility that the glyphosate is getting into the proteins that are being produced by the live virus that's in the vaccine. And in particular, there's a protein called hemagglutinin that the measles virus produces, which is the antigen that you're supposed to react to. So if, if the vaccine works, your body has developed antibodies to hemagglutinin, to measles hemagglutinin. That's how it will be able to clear the measles if it shows up again later in life. And that hemagglutinin has this antigenic segment that has three glycine residues in it and that has a close resemblance to a segment in myelin basic protein in the myelin sheath that also has three glycines at those same three places. So that's three opportunities for glyphosate to substitute for glycine. So you're going to have a much more antigenic uh, situation if there's glyphosate instead of glycine in the protein. Your body's going to be much harder. It's going to be much harder to break it down. The immune system is going to be more reactive. And studies on autistic kids have shown that they have a very high, many of them have very high antibody response to the measles in the vaccine. And they have an antibody response in the brain, and they have an autoimmune disease in the brain where those antibodies are attacking the myelin sheath. So all of that makes a lot of sense as far as a mechanism by which MMR could be causing autism. Wow. Wow. There's so much in that, everything that you just said, that it's making me cover my eyes. It's just like mind blowing. <laughs> it's a little hard to swallow. It's a lot of biology, but it's really fascinating to me. I mean, I'm. The biology is just so interesting. It, uh, you can tell that I, I really, um, I'm enchanted with it, but it's terrifying. The consequences are just mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. And the fact that we think, well, that's a whole other show, but I know I have to toss that opinion out, that we think that we know better than the body. It blows my mind. I know. Like, really? I really? What is that? When did we become more powerful than the body? Really? I agree with you completely. I think we're, we're trying to play God, and we don't really know how to do it, and we don't understand the consequences. I want to say also MMRV is a uh, MMR plus varicella. That's a whole package of four different, uh, you know, antigens all packaged up in one uh, vaccine. And Corvelva is a group in Italy that has been doing some wonderful work uh, looking deeply at the vaccines themselves and analyzing them for all kinds of of chemical contaminants and ingredients. And um, they've just been, uh, gosh, stuff has been pouring out of that place. It's amazing what they're finding. And they recently looked at MMRV and um, very disturbing what they found because they found um, three different 
uh, retroviruses. One was a human retrovirus, and they found an avian re- retrovirus, which is a bird, and then a equine retrovirus, which is a horse. Mm. Retroviruses can cause all kinds of uh, interesting problems. It's something that um, Judy Mikovits has made a name for herself in her concern about retroviruses and their link to um, autism and to uh, chronic fatigue syndrome. So there are retroviruses as contaminants in the MMRV vaccine. They also found human DNA. They claim they found an entire human DNA, uh, entire sequence of human, you know, big, long sequence of human DNA in the MMRV vaccine. And they found that the rubella antigen was in minuscule amounts. It was so tiny they couldn't imagine that it would actually induce an immune response. So both deficiencies in terms of insufficient antigen and extra ingredients that aren't supposed to be there that are very dangerous. And they're finding this in all the vaccines that they're looking at. They're finding different things. It's really disturbing. And I really hope that their um, their studies will get widely uh, that the public will become aware of these things that they're finding because it's, the vaccine industry is becoming very sloppy in the manufacturing process because they don't have to worry about lawsuits because of the 1986 act that Reagan uh, initiated from uh, lawsuits. And instead it goes through this vaccine court, which is a, a government run thing and the taxpayer ends up paying for compensation if they win in court. I'll just jump over that. I can get on my cloven hooves and my carb box and really rage about that. Um, I want to jump back very briefly and just make a comment about the measles outbreak. I'm really glad you clarified that for me because I ha- I'm a little older than you are, and I had that experience as a kid as well where we, uh, everybody got measles. Yes. You just had measles. You had down. spots. Everybody was like, oh, my God, I have spots on my belly. I have to stay home. Yay. Yeah. And there was no – I thought suddenly measles had become some super hybrid, you know, fierce Hulk-like warrior, and it's just yeah. measles. It's still just measles. It's you still get just sick. Measles. That's the thing, you know. It has benefit to the system. It builds your immune system. It's a positive – because even as a kid, they understood that it had benefit. You, Oh, everybody has it measles. I and totally it's over. that it was really – you should make sure you catch these measles because you, this is a good opportunity for you. That's what they told me. You know, you need <laughs> yeah. to get it while yeah. you're young. Because if yeah. you get it later, it's going to be worse. You need to get this done. And then it was like, oh, great, I checked that off. You felt so good about yourself that you got through that milestone, you know? I remember family friends. Had to face. I had family friends at that time who didn't have it and, like, came over and visited and sort of rubbed up against me to right. see if they could get the measles so that they, too, were all part of the team. <laughs> yeah, team I know. Measles. It's so different now. It's so funny how they've managed. They're very good at instilling fear in people and making them extremely worried about something that isn't actually a problem, you know. And we've had actually many more deaths from the vaccine itself. We've got over 100 reports just in VARS alone, and VARS is very underrepresented of uh, of death associated with the MMR vaccine. And the measles is practically never – the mortality rate on measles is extremely low at this point. So when measles first appeared in the early 1900s, it was pretty bad, and people were dying from it. But the death rate kept going down over time. And by the time they introduced the vaccine, the death rate was also already extremely low. The vaccine made very little difference in the amount of deaths that you got from measles. You know, it was basically already a solved problem by the time they introduced the vaccines. People got the disease, but they didn't die. Right. They just got sick for two weeks and stayed home. What's wrong yeah. with that? 
I, I don't know. know. That's the thing. It's so funny. And you weren't even, and it wasn't like the, you know, it wasn't like flu. I mean, you weren't that miserable. They itch. No. It was annoying. I wasn't, I wasn't anything. I don't remember anything. I had a few spots on my stomach, and I, they didn't even itch. I mean, it was great. We had a great time. I remember it fondly. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> It's funny. I mean, different people will have different degrees of response, and that has to do with how weak your immune system is, too. If you've got a strong immune system, I mean, I spent a lot of time playing outside. I had lots of sunlight exposure. I had plenty of vitamin D, you know? It it really is just a matter of keeping – we need to understand that our children need to be get their immune system strong by staying away from the toxic chemicals. Eat the organic food. You know, always buy organic when you shop. Get out in the sunlight. You know, get a lot of exposure to the sun to boost your vitamin D. And – um Eat wholesome food, you know. Eat whole foods. Don't eat processed foods. It's really very simple, I think, the formula for good health that will strengthen your immune system, especially yeah. if you get the measles. It's no big deal. Right, right. <laughs> it's the other thing is China has – so China's been grappling, grappling with measles breakouts all over the place in China, and they've got papers on that, and I've read their papers. One paper they had was very interesting because they showed that and first of all, their vaccination rate was going up and up and up. So as the vaccination rate continued to go up, then all of a sudden they started getting measles showing up with higher vaccination rates than they had had before they were getting measles. So that was a puzzle to them. You know, with us, we, we say it's because fewer people are getting the vaccine that we're getting these outbreaks. In their case, that was not what was going on. And they found the, the, a study from the, by the Chinese showed that the measles wild virus was mutating into a form that didn't, no longer matched the vaccine version of the virus. And so the vaccine actually wasn't working because the wild, wild type had outsmarted it. And it had a new strain that the vaccine version didn't uh, sufficiently match so that the antibodies didn't work. And I think that may be going on here as well. It's not just a matter of getting vaccinated in order to protect yourself. Right. You actually have to participate in your own health care. What a shocking Right. <laughs> um, we're not being educated that direction, that's for sure. Now, I'm stunned to find that we're very close to the end, and I wanted to uh, move toward – I have so many other questions, and we didn't even touch CRISPR. That's a whole other show. Um, yeah. <laughs> I want to I have kind of a, what I would call, in my opinion, good news. Talk a little bit about the state of glyphosate lawsuits and yeah. the Bayer-Monsanto stock crisis. I love Yay. it. I, I am so happy. This is really just, I need some good news because I'm so depressed about our future. And I see these lawsuits come, cropping up like dandelions all over the place. And I feel like it could be the beginning of the end for glyphosate. I'm very hopeful. And there have been three, three so far. And the first two won big amounts of money, $68 million and $80 million. And then the third one is underway right now, I think close to wrapping up. And it's a couple. Both of them have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they, they use glyphosate in their own property for many years. That's the only chemical they use. So it really points to the glyphosate. It's not going well for the defendant, and um, I'm hopeful they're going to get a good sum as well. And then there's a class action lawsuit that's building right now. And there's like 11 or 12,000 cases behind these three waiting in the in the wings. So the stock is, is has been plummeting, Bayer stock, and uh, they had a recent, um, you know, meeting of the board meeting and investors meeting, and, and there's just like, there's a lot of panic going on, I think, and there's like they're going to possibly even oust their management. I, mean, I think a lot is going on at Bayer where they're getting a lot of pressure because why did you buy this company? This is a disaster. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to Monsanto and what happens to glyphosate. There's also... Uh, Companies that are no longer selling glyphosate because they can't get insurance, this is very interesting. A company that mostly sells to um, uh, golf courses, 
and they the insurance was not going to uh, the insurance company would not renew their insurance because they were concerned about people coming to this you know complaining about glyphosate causing health issues because of exposure on the golf course and so they're no longer selling glyphosate because of the insurance problem so that's another way i hadn't even thought of that but that is so cool so maybe it'll go off the market uh, because of these issues and the company might collapse because of the lawsuits. I mean, there are ways in which it could get knocked out much more quickly than we could hope the regulators might do something because the regulators are extremely slow. But there are other ways to get rid of it. And obviously, in the consumer, don't buy it. Don't use it on your lawn. Buy organic food. Force your farmer to buy organic, to, to produce organic food. All these pressures are going to help to get this chemical off this planet. We need to get it banned worldwide. I don't think there's any other solution that I would find acceptable. I sure hope so. I remember how many years I was I was shocked to find that uh, DDT wasn't really outlawed until 1972, and then it can it still consisted. You know, they still sold it internationally to right. other countries where they could still pull it off. So I really I, I'm I agree with you that it just has to be stopped. In some way, the madness just needs to be stopped with glyphosate because of everything that you've talked about. Um, right. It's really just amazing that we just yeah, yeah it's everywhere. Okay, I need to stop. Uh, that, was, that, was, that was excellent. I knew it was going to be excellent. Um, thank you so much. And uh, I will talk to you about coming back and talking about CRISPR because that's a whole, wow, mind-blowing subject. That's almost as mind-blowing to me as I, the idea, I, you know, as glyphosate. It's just like, really? Just, I, uh, uh, I, I, I don't wow. have time to read the CRISPR papers. It's just like there's too much going on. Exactly. But thank you so much. That was great. And uh, everybody else, have a great rest of the weekend. Take your apple cider vinegar. Take a walk in the woods. Soak a body part in Epsom salt. Eat fermented foods. Eat organic. It's not hard. I mean, it is, you know, at first it's a learning curve. But once you get used to it, it's okay. Pretty easy. Right. And eat some, you know, I am I think there should be a baseball cap, uh, the Senef uh, team cruciferous. I really, I've always, again, this is another thing as a kid. I, I've, I've always liked the cruciferous everything. I used to eat cabbage with apple cider vinegar on it as even a kid. So I've, yeah, I've always been a weirdo. All right, everybody. Have a great weekend, and thank you so much. We'll talk thank to you me. again soon. Bye-bye.